0: I'm Jason Concepcion, and this is Foundation, the official podcast from Apple TV+. Joining me again is David S. Goyer, showrunner and executive producer. We're also joined by co-executive producer and writer Lee Dana Jackson. And we're going to get into episode four of Barbarians of the Gate. Once again, spoilers will be in this podcast episode. If you have not watched episode four, stop now, watch the episode, and come back. Foundation, the official podcast, is your guide to the galaxy from Trantor to Terminus to Anacreon. Space is a big place. We aim to make it smaller, make it brighter, and add some context to everything you see on the show. David, Dana, how are you?
1: Good. Awesome. Yeah.
0: We uh, talked to David about this previously uh, and he talked about assembling a writer's room that, that had overlapping skills. And, you know, what's your What was your relationship to sci-fi and to Foundation?
1: I'm I'm a huge genre person, huge genre nerd. Um, I had no relationship with Foundation. Like, <laughs> <at all. laughs> um, I mean, full, full disclosure, like, it's part of that generation of sci-fi that was, like, white dudes in the 50s, like, mm-hmm. writing about stuff that had nothing to do with people who look like me, and, like, none of us are in that world. Yeah. So I just, I didn't read that. I mean, I, I read, like, five pages of it as a kid. I read, like, five pages of Dune. You know, like, yeah. all that, that whole generation of stuff I had no interest in. Um and in fact, my when,
2: my VFX supervisor called the first book "White Dudes with Mutton Chops" talking about space tobacco. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> um, and in fact, when David, when I first met David, and he was like, "Oh, you should like maybe consider to, like coming and work on the show," and I was like, "Foundation, that old? No, no. Do you remember this? Yeah." And yeah. I was like, "No," because um, I I'd written something that he and he was like, "Oh, you did a good job on that. Do you want to come work on this?"
2: No, I remember you were like. No, it's not for me. And I remember, I was like, I'm getting on a plane. I'm like, let me send you the first episode.
1: And I I read it on the plane, and I literally texted him when I got off the plane. I was like, when do we start? This is amazing.
0: (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about this episode. Quick uh, recap. We meet uh, young Don in the midst of an existential crisis. Brother Day dresses down uh, the imperial statisticians. I feel bad for them. Uh, The Anacreans are uh, making a mess on Terminus, and we'll be getting into the legacy and how these characters uh, challenge their fate, things like and that. And we
2: also kick off the Luminist storyline. That's in this right. Episode.
0: We, get a, we get a view of one of the major religions within the galaxy. Let's start with um, that really bracing intro to young Dawn played by Cassian Bilton as he's standing on the ledge. Um, what, what is What is driving him to this place?
2: Well, this is the sort of teen dawn kind of 18, 19 year old. and um, I remember saying to the room, "I, I want to come up with a storyline about Empire that makes us empathize for them, something you know, across the season. And I want it to be really surprising. and, and this isn't spoilers, but just to say that the Dawn storyline does take a very surprising turn later on in the season. We just thought it would be interesting. Like, y- you meet this kid, and the first thing he tries to do is kill himself. It's like, I'm, I'm watching that story. <laughs> like, what's up with this kid?
1: Yeah, I think we, I think you, you had a sense of what, I mean, we know where that story goes, uh, and, and we want, and you're just like, what's the most interesting way to tee up the way he's looking at the world? I think at, at its root, we were just talking about what is it like to be, an adolescent who is dealing with dissonance mm, between yeah. the world and with your family like simultaneously, because he both feels like this family, like his dad and his grandfather slash himself and himself, um, he has a secret from them, but as this person who's a public figure, he also has to figure out how to resolve yeah. that secret with the whole world that's constantly looking at him. Um, so we did talk about sort of like trans metaphors and coming out metaphors, and. Um, You know, those things weren't explicit, but the idea of trying to explore what those dissonances are between yourself and the world um, led us to a lot of really great moments in his story, um, which again, no spoilers, but like moments in his story where he's trying to navigate these very narrow corridors of like, I should be like this, but I have to be like this. Or I want to be like this, or I am like this, but I have to be like this.
2: One of my favorite scenes in that episode, and it's really subtle, is he's at this um, kind of dinner mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. day and dusk, yeah. and they're talking about Luminism. Think, Brother Dawn,
0: if a soul cleaves only to an individual being, that calls into question that which cannot be individuated. All Cleons are perfect genetic copies of the first. And therefore,
1: we don't have souls. So this Selima woman is saying we're what? On human?
2: Indirectly. And there's this moment where Day kind of looks at him <laughs> like, yeah. What's your deal? Like, and, mm-hmm. then, and then there's another moment in the episode where he's sketching something, and then the Shadow Master, who's sort of like the house spy, shows up, and then he switches hands, and there are just all these subtle little hints that something's off about this kid.
0: You mentioned him not feeling correct in his skin. There's a lot of tension within himself and there's a lot of tension within Empire at this time. I think there's um, – you see Day really calling dusk to the carpet for yeah. actions, uh, decisions that he made when he was the primary emperor. Uh, the, you meant at that dinner scene, uh, the way that Day explains Luminism to Dawn is, is pretty – Uh, blunt and rough and like come on think about what that would mean yeah um how did you how did you decide on the characterizations of these three different versions of the same man at different points in their life
2: well don's issue is like he's worried about he won't measure up Mm -hmm. that he won't become day and and dusk as a result of all this stuff with harry selden thinks that Day is being incautious. Like there's this moment where this, this crisis is happening and, and normally Day doesn't leave Trantor. Right. They send Dusk to leave Trantor. And, and Day says, no, I'm going to do it. And so Dusk is worried that Day is being impetuous and then Day is under all this pressure and he sees these decisions that Dusk made when he was his age and he think he screw- he thinks he screwed up and so he's that's an issue where he's looking at his older self and saying I don't want to be this guy I want to do be something else so it's it's just a we just constantly talked about these guys as it was this really strange um dysfunctional family
1: and we we had a really good conversation about if the if what happened in the previous episode is like the in, the inciting incident for the whole rest of their lives mm-hmm day in four is the dawn who was scared mm-hmm. and dusk in four is the day who heard Harry's proclamation and has always been like mulling on mm-hmm. that for decades right so like if this dusk has been living with that forever everything he's worried about is now starting to everything's he been worried about since he was day is like oh I'm, I am starting to see the seeds of this and if this is the dawn who used to be scared? He's like, I'm never going to be scared. I'm overcompensating. I'm overcompensating. Yeah. Um, and with those kind of foundations for each terrible pun, <laughs> <laughs> um, with those roots for each of those characters, it it kind of dictates like how they're going to interact in all these things. Um, and because that incident is so strong, it it made it pretty really easy I think for us when we're like, oh, how are they going to react to this? Oh, mm-hmm. he's going to be impulsive and he's going to be like. He's gonna to want to pull it back, and they're gonna—they have this like really strong difference of opinions. That
2: thats what was cool about. We spent all this time developing the characters in the show, and the cool thing is, we got to a point where a lot of times, the plot would be dictated by the characters. Mm-hmm. I find that really exciting because that means that you've, to me, that's gold mm. for mm-hmm. a writer in a television show when the actor does something against their own self-interest, but does it because. You understand their
1: their Achilles' heels, right? We spent a lot of time talking about the first three episodes, yeah. And then by the time we got to four, we were breaking episodes like twice really as fast, really fast. Mm. because yeah. we knew who everyone was re- in in really like emotionally at their core. And so then it was like, oh well, this is what's going to happen. Then
2: we would spend two or three weeks an episode on like the first couple episodes, yeah. and then yeah, once we hit four, it was like. We were breaking episodes in four days. Yeah.
0: For the people who don't know what this means, what is breaking story?
1: Breaking story is just figuring out what the story for the episode is. In the case of this show, I think David, even when we started, you had some of the big moves. I mean, yes. you certainly need yeah. the end game. Yeah. And then had a lot of big, the big moves. So then it's like, okay, if if we're if we know we're starting here, coming out of episode three, and we need to get to here, what's the most interesting version of that episode between those two points?
0: How much do the actors influence the characterizations of these characters? Do they do you guys do y'all talk about it? Yeah,
2: yeah, we do. I mean, I did a lot of talking with them at the beginning and in the and they they bring ideas and I'm I'm open and I'm collaborative and Jared's the one Jared's well they're all incredibly smart, but Jared is in real life He's a lot like Harry Selden, and I mean, he just he just he just is, you know. And and it, this doesn't all this all, this almost never happens, but he was who we were hoping we would land, mm-hmm. and his picture was on the wall in the writer's room. Mm-hmm. Oh and wow! It just never happened. Never happened. He, <laughs> he's the first person you we went out to, and he said yes. And it was it was hard to imagine anyone other than him, and. um you know, and he picks apart the scripts and we have a very robust relationship and, you know, we'll argue. But he's he's also really interesting because he'll say, and he did this with um, Lou uh, uh, in the first episode, he'll say, I don't think I, I should say that. Like, I think Gail should say that. Or He's mm. very generous, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and most of the time he's right, you know, about the way he analyzes it. Um right. And it's funny with Lee, who plays Day, he's really into playing and you see it. He's he, he just said, I wanna be this man child.
0: His he, mannerisms. Yeah. The way he the way he's lounging, yeah. When he's, he's petulant is uh, he does it with just the way he sits, the way he looks at people, it's amazing. But
2: he wants but he's like, I really wanna like Show these little glimmers of his insecurity, which you mm-hmm. see yeah. throughout. There's just these amazing little moments, and and the thing about Lee that is awesome is he's such a subtle actor that often it's not until I get into the editing room and I see you know something that he did, or we were shooting a wide and I that I'm like, oh my god, he totally
1: just did that little thing thing about writing, one of the things about writing in the streaming space that's different from the old days of like writing in network, when you're shooting and writing simultaneously, like watching these episodes and watching Lee's physicality, I don't, he's, I mean, obviously he's big, like yeah. he's like 6'4 or something. Like he's a, yeah. he's a tall and built on the page. Like he's so intimidating as I watch him. Yeah. And I think if I had known... That he was. You just, would have written him differently. I would have written him, maybe written him like d- differently, because he's all, he's he has such a huge presence, and he plays he plays with that in yeah. really interesting ways. Not in a, Not I would have like, I th- I feel like if you were in the old days, you would have written to that more because right. there were a lot of ways right. where we weren't writing right the things that he does. No,
2: you're right. We I mean Lee, Lee's name came up fairly early in the casting process, but um, it was so awesome. I was hoping this would happen. So he, he's six five, and Lou. At who tight. plays Gale is five one. Wow, and <laughs> in that scene in the first episode, he just towers over her, and it's not like he's standing on an apple crate or anything. Like he's just, and it's awesome because he's just so much bigger than her.
0: Uh, one of the, one of the moments in which. Uh you get a sense of the scale of day is when he is haranguing the imperial statisticians, yes, uh, to the point of death. One <laughs> yes, might add. Yes, yes <laughs> yeah.
2: no, I love, I love that moment, and it's, it's so funny, and I wish there were more of those <laughs> moments in it. And Lee just, he was like, "How big do you want me to go?" And I was like, "I was, I was there. When we shot. It. I'm like, big, like just." operatic like go for it
0: what kind of idiots are you a thousand imperial mathematicians can't pass the numbers of one man so there's nothing anyone in the galaxy can do is that what it is is that the best you've got
2: when we were doing that scene I was just laughing so hard and at first at first Apple was like but this scene's funny and like he should be scary. I was like, no, it's, trust me, it's good. Right. <laughs> it's <Right>. good because <laughs> he's so just, you idiots, you know.
0: <laughs> it's, it's a great scene because, again, I, I, I thought of uh, the scene from the pilot in which uh, the previous day was uh, giving a lesson to Ascendant Dawn about how, you know, The people, the cooks who are preparing the the roast peacock, they do it a specific way because they're scared they're going to get sent to the heat sinks 50 levels down and they're scared of him. And then <laughs> here we see later another generation, Day using that intimidation yeah, yeah, factor right. uh, to harangue the statisticians who he's hoping to get good work out of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hilarious. What is life? I found myself thinking this as we're looking over these beautiful gardens and grounds. It's What's what's life like in the palace?
2: I mean, we talked a lot about it was like Louis the Fourteenth, or, you know, mm-hmm. growing up in Versailles yeah. or something like that. That was the model. And they're just in this bubble. They're these sort of cosseted, you know, like imperial czars or something like that that just never – their feet just never touch the ground. They just have no concept of – really what the rest of the galaxy is like, which is why it's so remarkable in this episode that Day decides... He's never been off Trantor. And it's why it's so remarkable that he decides to make this journey to the maiden, which is this moon that orbits Sura, which is the seat of this religion. And, and this religion is built around a matriarchy, which is the exact opposite of, of what they've built. And this religion believes in reincarnation. And so they, they believe that these clones are, are stagnating, that they, like their, their souls can't ascend and they can't grow and they can't evolve. And so the other thing that was interesting about this episode was we talked a lot about like the West Wing, right? Like how do you tell um, a dramatic story about a, a president? Yeah. You know, and um, what kind of problems... A president
1: have to be involved in, right? Because right. we were trying to figure out if you're the most powerful person on in the galaxy, who can threaten you? And yeah. and like we talked, we, we talked a lot about wars and like is there a rebellion? Is and it all felt like that's that's, that's like boring. small stakes. It's yeah, boring. small like
2: stakes. If you're, you know, but faith, right? Because the Empire isn't religious. Right. Faith felt like an interesting threat. And and Gail's voiceover talks about that in the episode. Yeah. Belief is a powerful weapon. That's why the Empire feared Harry Seldon's predictions so much. Empires govern worldly concerns. But what comes after? Our souls? These realms are the purview of faith. And faith is a sword forged in the fires of the infinite. And the other thing that's really interesting about the episode that we sort of hint at in previous episodes is that Demerzel, who's a robot, is religious mm-hmm. and is an adherent of this faith. And we just thought, well, how crazy would that be? And even Day is like, wow. how, how, how does that work? You're a robot.
0: So let's go to Terminus, where the Anacreans uh, are introduced to us fully. Um, Take us through Anacrian culture a little bit. There is a really interesting uh, position that this character, Farah, um, has the title to. She is the, the huntress.
1: The grand huntress. The grand yeah. huntress, yeah. the
0: top huntress in, in all of Anacrian. What went into uh, casting some of the creative decisions behind um, behind the Anacreans, and, and what concerns were there about the depiction?
1: Um, so... Really early on, we had a conversation about the terminology of barbarians being, um, you know, a real world term. Mm-hmm. Um, myself and Saladin Ahmed both felt really strongly that like the um, the barbarians couldn't be brown people, like. And this is in a conception of the show, like when we didn't know how the show was going to be cast, we so, you know, didn't know
2: if Gail right. Gale was going to be a woman of color yet, or right.
1: any of that. So, yeah. in in all our minds, it's just like the default was well if we're going to go make like a white sci-fi show we can't have the barbarians right. be brown people <laughs> right <laughs> um and obviously the show doesn't look like that but what that gave us No but I
2: get the concern
1: I was yes. like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's you know and 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 we I didn't know you that well at that point yeah. so I didn't know like is David someone who's going to be able to have this conversation yeah. or is he going to be like no it's got the protagonist has to look like me um and so you know we solid and wrote this incredible um, I would give I would give writers homework. Yeah. I would say you're
2: gonna do the Anacreans. You're gonna do the whatever. The whatever. Yeah. And so, and this
1: would
0: be like background. Yeah, what's yeah, the planet yeah, like? Yeah, what's
1: yeah. yeah. Um. So, like, what's the religion like? What's the you know what is the and I was I was gone that day, but I remember coming in the next day and and everyone read them in the room and Solidon had written this just like incredibly, like, beautiful description of of the anacrian culture and it was like space elves it was like trees and and it was just, it literally was just like space elves and in our minds we were like <laughs> there were these like tall white blonde space elves yeah. so we were like okay if if that's what the world is then space elves like the white space elves are, are the barbarians but what that led to that made it into the show that was really great is that the underlying point was just, like, we need to make sure to personify those people, like, that we yeah, 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 are yeah, that in their point of view. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so Pharaoh's point of view in her story is as strong and valid as, you know, Gale's or Salver's or anyone else's point of view. And, and you know, making sure to she's dimensionalize also, She's her. also and she's basically
2: right, right, you know, exactly. about everything she's saying.
0: Barbarians. Just a convenient slur for anyone not like you. Trantor left us all here to die, your people and mine. We're just dying at different speeds.
2: Once we got into the casting, I, I was saying, okay, so Trantor, which is like the center of the galaxy, mm-hmm. is just a big melting pot. It's it's New York City, it's Washington, D.C., it's, it's London, whatever. And But I thought it made sense to me that the planets in the Outer Reach that were colonized last, or maybe weren't even colonized, but had been sort of taken over by mm-hmm. empire, would be distinct cultures, or would be mm-hmm. distinct races, and that I was trying to make a subtly a point about that. And so I wanted to interrogate the whole idea of of othering people, of, of discounting them, by la- which is why the episode is called Barbarians of the yeah. Gate. Mm-hmm. Um, so that ultimately led to, since the empire is personified by these white guys... It felt right to, to do that with the Anakrians. Yeah.
1: yeah, I've been on shows where you like want to tell that story, but you don't, and so you end up just like coming into them as the bad guy, and they're you know they end up just being like terrorists blowing things up, and that's terrible. It's stupid. It's also just like bad storytelling. And yeah. so we just wanted to make sure that when we were telling their side of the story, we understood why they felt the way they did, and we saw what happened. Like yeah. we saw the barbaric. the emperor
0: legitimately said you probably didn't do it. Yes. Right. <laughs>
2: yeah. I might have done it, but just well, in case. But the other thing that's interesting about something that happens in this episode um, is, and it ties back to the first episode, not just the Starbridge bombing, but there's this scene where the Anachrians and the Thespians present gifts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's this bow and this thing called the Book of Ablution, and then there's this whole sort of conversation about the the symbolism of those mm-hmm. gifts. Yes. And it becomes this teaching moment for Dawn. And I just thought it would be really cool at the end of, after the Starbridge gets blown up, Day says, we will, of course, be returning your gifts. And so when Farrah shows up in this episode, it's this famous bow from this right. famous hunter, Larkin King. Yeah, the, the ambassador took that bow back to Anakron and it wound up in her hands this gift that had been denied and now she's going to use this gift to mess up some shit with the empire. And so it's a, it's a, and then even that bow has a story through the rest of the season, which is kind of interesting is it it was all of this idea of, of like history doesn't happen in a vacuum. Right. Right. You know, you look at what's happening to Afghanistan right now. It's not just what was happening post 9-11. Right. It was what was happening when the Soviets were there, it was happening when the British were there. It's like none of this stuff happens in a vacuum. And not to get too highfalutin, but you want to think that like if if anyone was a student of history in the the government, they would have known this would have happened. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. like like just just follow Harry Seldon. It's so sometimes it's just so frustrating. And that's kind of what Asimov was all about was like a lot of this stuff isn't unique like we follow these patterns and these cycles and we keep making the same
0: mistakes um the language um where did it come from how much thought went into that a lot
2: of thought went into it and um thespin as well i mean when we were writing it i think we just put placeholder or parenthetical but for all the various languages that we created on the show, we worked with a fabulous linguist in Ireland named Finula Murphy. She she just had a very deft ear, and so we would talk about what the different societies were like, and then she would think about their verb structure or you know how they would use consonants or not.
1: So the anachreans, for example, they're the fierce, aggressive ones. Their words are quite choppy and short.
0: But then, conversely, the Tesbans are kind of take their time,
1: their language flows a bit more smoothly, a bit more like a river. I was kind of, that was what I said to the actors when we were practicing it, to just kind of luxuriate in it a little bit.
2: They follow, they do follow consistent grammatical rules. And it was important to me that they do, and that it not just be gobbledygook. And so, it was also fun, sometimes what the anachronists say, it's subtitled, but sometimes it's not. But, um... So all the actors would learn the lines, and and the challenge would be: well, can you pick up? Can you infer what they're saying, even Mm. though we're not subtitling it? And so that was kind of fun too.
0: Uh, There's a great moment where Hugo uh, speaks it poorly. Yes, which is Mm -hmm. great. (laughs) Great. Those
2: lazy vowels.
0: Uh, I love watching the confrontation between Farah and Salvor here because it is a game of chess on one level where. Each is taking the measure of the other and, and becoming increasingly surprised at, the, at the how thoughtful and how... They, they respect each other. ...how fierce the other yeah. opponent is. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, there's a the moment where... So Salvor has flipped it. Um, she has Farah uh, as her prisoner, and she's interrogating her and wants to know... Uh, understands that this can't be it. There's something else here. You're not scrappers. There's something yeah. else going yeah, on. Right. And part of this is she's flipping a coin and calling what the... what it is every single time um and farah is blown away by this yeah but keeps her mouth shut um what's going on there i don't
2: even remember where the coin coin idea came i remember oh you do tell me
1: well we knew that um we knew that salver had intuition yes Mm -hmm. and the idea was that she Needed something to help focus it, like when she needed to actually like a totem or use something. it. Yeah. She yeah. needed a totem, and so it started as a coin flip. And then you were like, "Heads or tails?" That sounds corny. What if it's like cats? You said something like cats and capes, and you're like cats and crowns. Yeah, and then yeah, you're yeah. and then you're like, it's cause, cats I like and "Cause I like, cause <laughs> I like alliteration." <laughs> yeah.
0: There's another moment that really stands out to me um, because it felt like a a real true life thing in which you know, oftentimes a person needs someone else a mentor to say actually you can do that you're you can do that there's that moment where a boss just says uh, to Salvor we have complete faith in you
1: if you were better at math you'd know that repeated luck was more than just luck Salvor and whether your mother wants to admit it or not we have been following your lead from the moment you pulled yourself upright it's no accident the people made you warden so lead us
0: I Can love that. Where would that come from? I love that scene.
1: That's funny that you mentioned that because I remember that scene and I. So part, go. This for is it. this is like way in the weeds, but like remember some of this was in a different. Ep- remember, yes, like the yes, whole that yes. whole storyline. Yeah, like, I, I like wrote a version of that whole storyline early. Yeah, on we, moved we moved from some stuff from one episode to another. And so some of that was in a different episode, and I remember writing a version of that scene, and I didn't like it because it felt like one of those. It felt like one of those scenes where like. Hey, hero of the story. You're <laughs> going to be the hero of the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and I couldn't I couldn't make it work. I, I, and and it but we needed like that. We knew that was the dynamic we wanted to get to. And that was a scene that Jane did a pass on yeah. early like I remember when yeah. when it went to Jane and it came back and I was like, "Oh, now this makes sense." Well, that because was a, she that, like got into the heart of like how that parent felt about and yeah. it wasn't just about like you need to go be the hero.
2: The thing that we tried to do on this show that was kind of unique is we would we would room every script so we would finish the script and then we 'd literally do a page turn with all the writers and just have didn 't matter what level of writer you were you could be a staff writer. anybody got a pitch for this line anybody, like yeah. in and I think everyone was nervous when we first we were like doing one of my scripts that I would <laughs> actually be. You know, but I was like, No, that's a good idea. That's say yeah. they were
0: getting ready to inject the fat
1: into the, yeah, yeah. the rosebird no, skin. Because everybody was like, Oh, that's great. Yeah. Like yeah. like yeah. no in one figuring, wanted to say yeah, anything yeah, yeah, I like yeah. Yeah, No one was like, No, no seriously. And I still do that. I, yeah.
2: I you know, I'll say Jane or Liz or whoever, yeah. like, take a take a run at it. It's fine. Um But I, can we also just say the reason why that scene worked is because Clark Peters yeah. delivered it. Yeah. I, mean, yeah, yeah, I mean he's yes. he's I I watched The Wire when it came out, season yes. one. I was like yeah. one of 16,000 people watching it. Like nobody's watching it. And I watched him in the background and then his character emerged and emerged and emerged. And so when we were casting, I had heard that Clark Peters lived in London. And so I said, "Can we, Can we? can I meet with him? So I met with him and he's like as cool as you hope he would be, right? Yeah. Like he's just like <laughs> so cool. And I just... I, and, and I just completely embarrassed myself and gushed over him and just said, like, you got to be in this show. And I sent him, like, four scripts. And I was like, what do you, you want to do? What do you want to play? He's like, I, th- I think I should be her dad. And I was like, yes,
1: yes. I have an email from you from when you cast him. Yeah. and of,
2: just, of your excitement. And the first day he came, we were shooting in Iceland, and I had dinner with him. And I was like, he's just one of my heroes. He can deliver anything. You know,
0: one of the things we talked about in the brainstorming of production of this pod that kept coming up is that guy lives in that world. Yeah. He lived like Mm -hmm. everybody is great. Yeah. Whatever it is that Clark has, you just feel like he lives there. He put me there. I understand something of what living on Terminus must be like because he just feels like he's there. He's incredible.
2: Well, he we. I mean, here's, here's a crazy story. So, so when, when the pandemic hit and we were going back into production, there was all this scrambling of like some actors were, their contracts were kept on and some weren't. And we were like, I hope we can get them back. And so he was off to do this other movie and we were shooting some of the scenes in this episode and he couldn't come until we were finishing Ireland and the Canary Islands so until like three months later. So we filmed, like, all of his scenes in three and four with a body double, first of all. Oh, wow. Right, like, over, over his back. Yeah. And then all those scenes, um, we then brought, like, a portion of the set to the Canaries wow. and then filmed his coverage in a completely different country. Whoa. And then, like, stitched it all together, and it worked perfectly. And thank God Alex Graves was directing it. He's he's a masterful director. And um, I remember when we wrapped with him, and it was about it was about two weeks before the whole shoot was done, and um, it it just was the hardest shoot of just all time. I mean, it would have been the hardest shoot of all time even without COVID, but it was so hard. Right. And Clark knew how much pressure I was under, and uh, so we finished his last scene, and he was going to leave, and I had about two weeks left, and he said, David, come here, come here, and he, and he, he gave me this big hug, and he was like, maintain, brother, maintain. <laughs> and, and, and I was like, I was like, will you be my oh. dad? <laughs> like, <laughs> will you just, you know?
0: Okay, another game of building the foundation, David... You can pass to Dana if you think he is faster at this He's answer. Definitely
2: faster. Two minutes
0: to answer as many of these as possible. Clock will start now. Your target is five. Ready? Some, some, something to build. Upon. You'll be allowed to build your foundation. A foundation.
1: The best
0: you've got. Question one: The Huntress's bow. There's no Palladium in it, but is it any more uh, futuristic? What are the stats on this bow? Does it shoot farther? Does it shoot harder?
2: It's it's made out of a Talon oak, um, and I can. Say that because that's something we changed later on, and you don't know about <laughs> oh, it. No, uh, no, it's just a really dense oak, but it's not. It doesn't have any superpowers. It's not like Hawkeye's bow.
0: I got it. Uh, the coin that Salvor is flipping. What is the denomination? Where is that good for? Like, what is it? It's worth?
2: a Trantorian coin. Her her dad gave it to her from Trantor, and so one side of the coin are, are the its crowns or the three kleons, um, but then. Ironically, this is this is a bit odd, but the other side of the coin is a bishop's claw, which doesn't really make sense because why <laughs> yeah, why right, right. would a, an animal from Terminus yeah. be? But it just it was cool. It. Yeah, it was cool. Uh,
0: the force field. What does it stop? What does it not stop? The Trantorian for, and on on Terminus, excuse me.
1: The fence. The, the fence. fence. Yeah, the fence. Anyone whose DNA isn't coded to go through the fence, it stops that, and it stops like energy weapons, yeah, projectiles.
2: Yeah. So, so, like, so everyone on Terminus, their DNA is coded so they can just walk through it no problem. But the Anacreons can't.
0: Uh, the Zephyr, what does that title tell us? Pope. Don't. No, oh, no, the Zephyr
1: is the no. Proxima's
2: the, Proxima is the, the, the Lady Pope. Right. Proxima like a Pope. Like Zephyr is like a bishop. Zephyr's bishop. Yeah. yeah. In, in, in Luminism. Oh, wow. And they're all females.
0: And the Foundation uh, Armory, what ammunition, what type of ammunition do these guns shoot?
2: Uh, We decided that um, Salver, uh, those rifles are rail guns. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they are projectiles, Mm -hmm. but they're fired super fast. And if if you look at the show, like the Empire has a different kind of weapon and the Anachron's have a different kind of weapon. And and believe me, we went down a rabbit hole (laughs) on like, you know, what the different kind of muzzle flashes of these different weapons are. And then Hugo (laughs) has an iron pistol. Right. And his one is unique and kind of different, too. They all have different kinds of colors and muzzle flashes and effects. But
1: His looks really different, too.
2: Yes, yes.
0: That's really cool. And then finally, David, what is in the vault?
2: Time in relative dimension and space. Whoa.
0: Well, thanks for listening to Foundation, the official podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts to get the next episode in your feed and watch Foundation on Apple TV Plus where available. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Max Linsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Barry Finkel. Our senior managing producer is Gabrielle Lewis. Our producers are Ahmad Ali Akbar and Jonathan Schifflet. Darby Maloney is our senior editor. Our composer is Carly Bond. And I'm Jason Concepcion. Thanks for listening. David Bina, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much.